these three mitzvot? What's the common denominator? First of all, the halakha, the reason why it's, they're considered the women's mitzvot is because the halakha is that if there's equal opportunity for the man or the woman, the husband or the wife, to do this mitzvot, the woman should do them. So if both, like in most cases, right, both parents, uh, both parts of the couple are home to do ner or chala, then the woman should um, ideally do them. Actually, that's what the halakha says. And in Nida and Tanah obviously this really falls on the woman, really her domain to do. So that's what it means when there are these three mitzvot that are given to the women. And these three mitzvot that we as women have ownership on, and it's empowering for women to be in charge of them. But if you look at the three mitzvot together, what really, what do you see from these three mitzvot? So chala is food, right, sustenance. Ner is Shabbat. And... Nida is what um, dominates and what um, organizes our couple union, right? Our marriage. And so what you can see is these three things, that each of them are physical in nature and make up our lives. So food is pretty obvious. Neirot Shabbat, it reminds Shabbat is the, um, is the end of the week, but the week is the work week. Um, where we do all of our physical regular activity and Shabbat is the culmination of that and acknowledging that this is a respite from that. And Nidah, the physicality is very obvious also. It's the physical relationship between husband and wife. And when we take all these three things and we make mitzvot out of them, we infuse all these mundane physical elements with spirituality. And so what in essence is saying is these three mitzvot are given to women to elevate the physical and bring in spirituality and bring in the spirituality in all aspects of our home, in our food, in our work, and in our relationships. And so that's like a little bit, a quick snippet on like the beauty of why these three sort of really given to women. Women are called the Akaratabayit. Um, they're like the matriarchs and the foundations of the home. So these mitzvot that are foundational to our home, to elevate our home, are given to women. Um, and the, I guess the last thing I would say on that is there's a midrash um, about Sarah, which I'm sure many of you have heard, that when Sarah was alive, there were three brachot on her tent, right? That her challah was always fresh from week to week, her Shabbat candles lit from week to week, and there was, anan, there was an anan, the shtina, on top of her on top of her tent. And the, in a lot of places, it talks about the shtina of Hashem dwelling over a home, is when a couple keeps Tarat HaMishpacha. So that's that's why that equates with Tarat HaMishpacha. So these three mitzvot given to us are the same blessings that Sarah had on her tent because she was scrupulous with them and elevating every aspect of her home with Kiddushah. So God willing, and, and with these three classes, we learn a little bit more about these three mitzvot. We'll have the ability to increasingly infuse spirituality into our lives. Okay, so I feel like I just gave a class and I didn't start. <laughs> um, okay. So my, um, my one of the three mitzvot is Nida, because, you know, of course, that's all I talk about. <laughs> um, but I want to focus on the, the whole mitzvah as a whole is Tarat HaMishpacha and Nida laws, but I'm going to focus more on the mikveh. Obviously, foremost because I have to consolidate and I can only really focus on one thing, but I think it's an element here based on kind of what I just said, where I'd like to focus a lot about infusing spirituality. And I think that mikveh is a prime example of where we can do this. Um, so in just very brief summary, so um, to give background, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, but there is this concept of Tumah and Tahara in the Torah, right? Um, being pure and impure. And there's a halakha that it says in Vayikra, 
um, I'm not going to read the psukim, but if you want, we can go over them after. But that if a woman is bleeding um, a certain time to a certain extent, there are parameters, she's considered a nida. And then she becomes tmea because of her status of nida. And then later on in the psukim, what does it say that she has to do? Um, if she becomes clean from this emission, this um, her bleeding, she should count seven days, which we know is our seven days, and afterwards, she should purify herself. So the Torah in the Tzuchim does actually not explicitly say that she has to immerse in the mikveh. Um, it's learned from a lot of um, associations with other Tzuchim. It also says in the Nidim a lot of times when it talks about other people dipping um, or other reasons to dip in the mikveh, it says, like the Nidah. So we learned that that's what it means. Aharti tahar. Um, afterwards, the woman should purify herself. That she's purifying herself through the mikveh. She's dipping in the mikveh. Okay. Zahava, where is it? Where is it? Vayikra. Oh, okay. And Vayikra talks about the of the and then it talks about um, what she has to do after to purify herself. And then in the Nevi'im, it says it compares other dipping experiences to the nida. Exactly. So no problem. Um, okay, so the, the Torah uses this word, tita her, that she should purify herself. So what is purification? What do we think of when we hear purification? Personally, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I, heard, I heard, I don't know who said it, someone said clean, right? Okay. So I think the instinct when we hear purification is we think clean, right? To, to cleanse. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of meanings of that word, but I think that a lot of people have this conception of when someone is tame or tamea, that they have some sense of dirtiness, that with impurity comes dirtiness, comes negativity, something wrong, right? And then when they immerse in the mikveh and they become tahor or tahora, then they're clean. Clean is positive, right? Dirty, negative, clean, positive. So what I kind of want to do here is dispel that a little bit, that um, that tame is not, is not necessarily anything dirty. It's a state of being. In the times of the Mikdash, life surrounded and revolved around Tumah and Tahara, right? So it could be that you were exposed to um, a dead body or you were exposed to insects or rodents, whatever. There were different things that made a person tame and it was just a status and all it meant was that you couldn't enter the mikdash. There were restrictions on you being able to, a person being able to get into the mikdash, but it wasn't negative and when a person immerses in the mikveh and becomes tahor again, I mean, not all too much, you have to go into the mikveh, but when a person becomes tahor again, it's not that they're becoming clean, it's a good thing rather than dirty, but it's really just transformation. You're, you're transferring and transitioning your status from, from one status to another, right? Um, so I, one example that I can give of many of this to just illustrate that it's really just this transition of status is the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, right? So on Yom Kippur, we know like if it's, it's pretty hard to to read along with it during Musaf because it's a, it's a little bit much. Like, you're just reading the whole Avodah, but uh, it's hard to connect to it, I would say, that it's hard to connect when you just read the whole Avodah, but that's what we do in Musaf of Yom Kippur. We just read what the Kohen Gadol did, right? But if you pay attention to what he did, 
he was going from the Mikdash, like in the Beit HaMikdash, into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, and out, and in and out. And he transferred five times. And every time that he transitioned, he changed his clothing. Does this sound familiar? No. Okay. So every time that he transitioned, when he was in the regular Mikdash, he would wear these white garments. And when he transitioned into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holiest place, he would wear gold garments. And every time that he switched, he dipped in the mikveh. So the Kohen Gadol would start out wearing white, and then he would finish his Avodai service in the mikdash, and he would be ready to go into the Kodesh HaKodeshim. He would take his white clothing off, he would dip in the mikveh, put on his gold clothing, go into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, do the Avodah there, come out, take off his gold clothing, immerse in the mikveh, go back to white. So, and that happens five times over the course of the Avodah and Yom Kippur. So if you look at that, it's not that his avodah in the mikdash as opposed to the Kodesh HaKodeshim was any less necessary, any less holy. So it, it to me, it kind of illustrates like it's just a, it's just a transition. Why did he have to dip in the mikvah after he came out of the holiest place in the entire world? Because it's not that he was defiled and it's not that it was negative. He was just transitioning. He was going from one work to another. So... Um, so I, I wanted to bring that example to kind of, again, I think I said this already, but to illustrate that the mikveh is not fixing and it's not cleaning, but rather transforming in a way, right? Um, okay, so let's bring this down to modern day mikveh use. So I think there's, there's you might come up with more, but I think there's three pretty much like main examples of when we use mikveh. What, what are they? Nida, right, dishes. exactly. Dishes. dishes, exactly. You dip our dishes. Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is a That's a really good one. And and it, it goes along the same the same ideas. But in a halakha sense, the other person who has to dip. Seth, right, that's our minhag. That's our minhag. So the other one is a ger, which I guess we're not as familiar with. <laughs> but a convert has to dip in the mikveh before he's allowed, he or she is allowed to enter into Klali right? Um, so if you look at all these examples of the halakha, of when someone needs to dip, it's a nida after she's a nida becoming tehora again, a ger who's going from being not Jewish to Jewish, and kelim, utensils, uh, pots, pans, all these things that we use in our kitchens when they go from um, being created by a non-Jew and we want to use them in our kosher kitchens, we have to immerse them in the mikveh also. So all three of these are, if you if you look at them, they're all transformative, right? It's changing your status from A to B, from one thing to the next. Yes, Sarah, sorry. What about a kala? A kala is for the same reason as a midah. So, so she has previously gotten her period until she goes, like until she gets married. And so the immersion is to change her status from Nida because uh, women who aren't married are Nida for lengthy periods of time because they never go to the Mikdash. So they always have that status. In the times of the Mikdash, if a, if a woman wanted to go to the Mikdash and she was single, she would have to go to the Mikdash. Even, you know, it wouldn't necessarily just be to be with her husband. So it's the same reason um, for a Kala. Um, okay, so I want to um, I want to develop this idea, right, that we're trying to build on this idea of transformation. Um, 
So let's talk about it. So this transformation is done through the mikveh, which we know is a pool of water. We'll get to exactly what the mikveh is in a little bit, but a pool of water. Where's the first time that, that we see water in the Torah? Like ever. Yeah, right? Separating comes before that. So it's actually in the second pasuk in the entire Torah. So it says the first pasuk is more like, um, I guess you could say, narrative of the whole thing. Right? Hashem created everything. But the next pasuk, exactly. So, so then what we're talking about the Ha'aretzaita Tohu We're taking a step back, right? Hashem created the world, but what existed before the world? The Ha'aretzaita Tohu Vavohu, which is like chaos most people ex- explain it that way um no order um the choshech al home and there was darkness like a depth of darkness i guess the ruach elokim al and god's um spirit was hovering over the water so we never really think about this because we just kind of think about the world existing before creation and like there being nothingness we think of this blackness we think of this depths of nothingness but in actuality, the Torah tells us that the world, or not the world, the existence was filled with water. Water and godliness over that water everywhere. So that's the first place that water exists. And then what you guys alluded to, when, when we talk about actual creation, so day one, Hashem creates light and dark, okay? Day two, Hashem doesn't create, what, what's day two? Exactly. So day two, we think like Hashem creates the sky and the sea, right? But it's not creation. Hashem just separates. He takes this water that was in existence and he separates it so that the waters above, the rakia above is the sky now and the waters below are the oceans, right? And then on the third day, Hashem creates land. land. Good. Land and water. But also, again, it's not really creative. Right? What does it say? What are the psukim? We can read it, but if anyone feels any better, read it inside. But um, Hashem doesn't create land; He congregates the waters, and then there is separation of dry land and water. So there's so much to say about Bereshit and this whole concept of really just like division and separation. I've listened to it a lot, dividing in order to like ultimately reunite. Okay, in a snippet, but. Um, um, so on the third day, Hashem separates, congregates. Can someone take this? It's very distracting to me. <laughs> um, Hashem separates all the waters. Um, sorry, congregates all the waters so that we have land and water. And when the Psukim talk about this, so I guess I'll read it inside. It says, the third day, the water should congregate, right? And if you hear Yikavu, what does it sound like? Hebrew word. Right. Exactly. Yikavu, from the same lashon of collection of water. El makom echad, to one place, v'tira ha'yabasha, and then you'll see the land, because the water is congregating. Vayikra elokim layabasha eretz, Hashem calls this dry land eretz, land. Ulemikveh hamayim, and to this congregation of waters, karayamim, he called the seas. Right, so, so this is the origin of water. Water was created. Water existed. Sorry, existed before creation. Water was always there, 
and then Hashem separates them and congregates these waters. And when he does that, it's called mikvemai, this congregation of water. Um, and I think it's really beautiful to think about that all, I, I love that I'm able to like see it, that all of the waters that exist in the seas and the oceans, these are, they like were from before creation, right? So it's, it reminds us of back to a time when there was like pure God in existence. That was it. So these waters are reminiscent of that because they weren't created. They were always in existence. But it was like God and water, that's, you know, that's origin. Water's origin. Um, okay, so what's the next time that we hear about water in the Torah? So we just said we heard about water in the Torah from Bereshit, right? Creation. What would be the next time that we hear about water? Does anyone have any idea? Noah, which is where everyone's mind goes to, but there's another one. Before, earlier. So in Gan Eden is when we hear about waters again, right? So we, we know the story about Gan Eden. Hashem creates man, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden, um, and he gives them, he gives, Hashem gives him, or them, man and woman, the Etzadat Tovara, right? This tree, and we all know what happens that man eat from it, woman, you know, made him do it. <laughs> and, um, and so, and because of this sin of eating from the Etzadat, they're expelled from Gan Eden, right? But when the Torah is telling this story, it, it describes Gan Eden. It describes Hashem putting Adam into Gan Eden. And then it pauses for a second, and it talks about four rivers, that there were these four rivers in Gan Eden, that Hashem, that I don't want to say created again, but there were these four, these four rivers within Gan Eden, and then after we list all the rivers, it goes back to the story. Adam eats from the, from the Etadat, and he is expelled from Gan Eden. And then there's a Midrash, which is a, a little-known Midrash, that what happens after Adam is expelled from Gan Eden, he sits down in the river that flows from these rivers of Gan Eden. He's outside, but rivers flow, right? So the, the rivers flow out of Gan Eden, and he sits in it, and he repents to do Teshuvah for his sin. And he and, right, So he's doing Teshuvah in this river that connects it back to Gan Eden. And what we can see from this is that Adam is trying to tap back into this spirituality of the waters that he had in Gan Eden, that before he sinned, he he had the connection to. And these waters, like we, talked with, like we just said before, the waters are this um, pure godliness. So he immerses himself, the Midrash says that he immerses himself in these waters, and he does the Shabbat because he's trying to reconnect and put himself back in the place where um, pre-chet, where there was only good, and he's connecting back to this godliness of pre bereshit right? Um, so I think another, so so another element that these waters show us in this story with Adam, again, this spirituality and this connection to Hashem, but they also, this story and this, this piece shows us that the waters are restorative, redemptive, right? Adam is sitting in these waters in order to do teshuvah for his chet because 
he's reconnecting to his original, to his origins, to the original place before he did the chet, and the waters are helping him serve that purpose. So the waters are here, redemptive, restorative, uh, restoring him back to, to his original state. Um, okay, so far so good, everyone. We're, we're following? Okay. Next example of water in the Torah is something that you all brought up. Noah, right? That's the one we think of when we think of water in Sefer Bereshit. So the next time that it's brought up is the Mabul. And what happens in the Mabul? It's used as a punishment. Right. So we could say that it's used as a punishment and it's used to destroy the world, or we could also spin it. And what's it also really doing? Cleansing. Cleansing and like rebuilding, right? So yes, obviously when we rebuild it's because something was destroyed. But Hashem is sending these waters and he is restoring and rebuilding the entire earth and, and world through this water. Yeah, so that's... Exactly. And so it's the same, it's the same theme that um, the waters are being used to, to rebuild, right? And to regrow uh, and to renew. Okay, so how do... So those are, there's probably many more examples, but those are a lot of examples in Bereshit about developing this concept of the waters being transformative, renewing, redeeming, right? Having all these qualities to it. So how does our modern, we quote, so now as a woman, right, we, we um, perform the halachot of of Tarat HaMishpacha, right? And we go to the Mikveh. How do our modern Mikvot tap into this energy of the waters that we're kind of, that we were building upon now? Is it green water? So, exactly. Who just the, I don't know. Oh, yes. So, so there are certain halachot about how you have to build the Mikveh. And there, there are a lot of complicated Mikvot, but one of the, like, in, whatever, they're all the halachot, I'm sure are important, but the very important piece to, so the collection of water in a mikveh is that it has to be natural water. It has to be either rainwater. Uh, <laughs> I had to dip something like a, a, a baking sheet in, in the mikveh like a few months ago. And I went to Saul's and I bought it there, right? And I went to dip in and he's like, oh, our, we redid the mikveh. So you can't dip it because it hasn't rained yet. Like we can't. And I'm, I was like, wait. It was like when there was no rain for like three weeks. I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And then it finally rained. And I was like, ah, I'm going to dip my thing. And I came and he's like, go right ahead. Um, so waters in the in the mikveh have to be collected. They have to be natural water. They have to be from rainwater or natural springs also. Um, and oceans can be natural mikveh because they're also natural water. They have to be collect, uh, collected from natural water, and also how they have to be collected. They have to be collected naturally. There's a halakha that when you build a mikveh, that you cannot um, draw water. So you can't like take rainwater in a huge pot and then like take it and and throw it into the mikveh. It has to be collected naturally. So there's a lot of ways that we do that to ensure that it's done properly. But so the point I'm getting at is that our modern mikvahot are these natural primordial waters. We are tapping back into that, right? When we immerse in the mikveh monthly or not monthly or however often we go, um, we're dipping in those same waters, those waters that existed pre-creation, those waters that Adam HaRishon tapped into in order to 
um, do Teshuvah and reconnect to himself pre and the same waters that God used to recreate the world after the Mabul, we're, used, we're literally dipping in the same water. Water is eternal, right? We all know the water cycle, it evaporates, there's condensation, it comes back down, it's all the same water. Water doesn't like get, it doesn't go somewhere and then re, be recreated, it's all the same water. So when we dip in the mikveh, we are, again, tapping back into all those powers that we that we have brought up so far. Um, I think also something that I read when I was preparing for this class that's, that um, is really nice is that when we think about, uh, and it's just really great to talk about these things at the ocean, and it's a whole cell, like we're by the ocean for however two, three months, and like we can just tap into this all the time, that the waters are, I don't know, what is it, like 70% of the world? Is it more than that? 90? I don't know. Science teachers? Anyone? <laughs> I don't have a clue. A lot. A lot of the world, right? But we have this dry land that we do, and we we work on. We work the land. We eat off the land. We, we um, I don't just mean physically work the land, but we do our work right on the land. But the, the waters are always surrounding us to remind us of that, right? So we have all this physicality in our world, but Hashem always surrounds us with these same waters to kind of remind us that the spirituality is always there and always surrounding us. Um, okay, so so now that we're sort of like in modern, right? Our modern mikveh use, um, there's some other pieces of this that I kind of want to tap into. Um, what are some halachot that you think of when you think of preparing for the mikveh? What, what, what do we have to do? What are the halachot? Checks, right, pre. But when you're actual, correct, that's the week before. But when you're actually preparing for immersion, what do you have to do? Shower, brush your teeth, teeth, right? Remove everything, right? Essentially. So these are all examples, but we remove everything from our body. And we cleanse our body. And we, we like, strip ourselves down to the core, right? So we, we, again, remove all this external clothing and jewelry and makeup and all that. Um... And we even remove like adhesive we might have or or like things in our eyes, right? Exactly. We remove everything, clean our teeth, food that we stuck in our teeth. We bring ourselves back to just us, like completely stripped of anything external. Um, and another halakha about the mikvet is that when we immerse, when we go down, when we dip, we have to have our entire bodies encompassed by the water at the exact same time, right? So, you know, when you dip and the mikveh lady, when you get up, she says kosher, right? That's because you were fully immersed all completely your entire body at the same time. If you aren't, you'll come up and she'll say, your hair was sticking a little out, your, your fingers were out, whatever. Your entire body has to be in the water at the exact same time. So when we see these two things, your body is completely stripped of anything external down to your bare complete self and full complete immersion. I think this image kind of brings up another image. I don't know if anyone's with me on the same image that it's bringing up for me. Yes, exactly. It brings up the image of like a baby in utero, right? A baby in utero is 
has nothing else, right? They haven't come out yet to like get their nails done and they haven't gotten their ears pierced yet. And they're completely stripped down to just them, just the baby. And they're completely immersed in this water, this amniotic fluid. And so when we do the same thing, when we strip ourselves down to, to just ourselves with nothing else, nothing external, and we immerse ourselves completely in the waters, we're having this rebirth experience. And the same, again, the same concepts, I know it's repetitive, but it's the same concepts we've been touching on, this renewal, this, um, I guess those are the two words, renewal and rebirth. Um, it's, it's very reminiscent of a baby in utero who's then born again, who's going into these waters to, to, be, to, to be reborn. And another thing, um, along the similar lines is that if you look at the word that means to dip in the mikveh, um, the Hebrew word is litbo, right? Like the Shoresh is tet vet lamid, to, to dip, tefillah, right? It comes from that word. And if you take those letters, tet vet lamid, and you make another word out of them, you scramble them, you get the word um, bet or vet, tet lamid, batel. Um, which is like nullification, exactly. So during this tefillah, during this immersion, we are nullifying ourselves. We are doing, going through this process of renewal and rebirth. And um, another thing I read when I was preparing that, it was a quote I found somewhere, and I, I couldn't find it again, so I don't remember the exact quote, but I'll, I'll hopefully do it justice, um, is that when we... When we nullify ourselves, right, and we have nothing external to us, we become like an empty vessel, right? So if you take a vessel and you strip it from everything, you become an empty vessel. And we become a vessel for Hashem's bracha that Hashem's giving us through these waters. And the quote that I read that was really powerful to me was, the emptier a vessel is, the more it can be filled, right? Something to that extent. And... I don't know, it spoke to me so much because it's true, right? If you have a cup and it's half full, you can only fill the other half, right? But if you empty the entire cup, you can fill the entire cup completely. So when we do this nullification process for ourselves and we and we remove any externals from our bodies and we immerse, we're able to, as much as we can, receive as much blessing as we can because we're not coming with anything that's already on us. We're not coming with, with our clothing that doesn't define us or our jewelry that doesn't define us or anything external to us. We're coming just as ourselves so we can reap all the blessings that the mikveh has to give us. Um, and another, um, in the psukim, in, in Navi, it a lot of times refers to that Hashem is our mikveh. Um, we talk about it also in Yom Kippur, that... Um, and it's in some really beautiful songs about Hashem being the, the greatest mikveh. So what does that mean? So first of all, we can see from the concepts that we were building before that when you immerse in this waters, all those original waters, right, that were existed before creation, that existed solely with God, this holiness. So when we immerse in waters, we're like immersing in God. Um, and based on the thing that I just said about being an empty vessel, it's like, so if we're immersing in God, we're really able to receive all that rachav as we immerse. Um, okay, so um, another point that 
to, to elaborate more on this, to, to illustrate this, is that there's another, um, I keep bringing up different halakhot, but I'm trying to bring up different halakhot within the mikveh process to kind of illustrate how it all comes back to the same, the same philosophy, the same thought. So another halakha um, in the mikveh is that it has to, the mikveh has to contain a certain amount of water. Okay, a mikveh has to contain what uh, the measurement of the volume is called se'ah, whatever name of the measurement, it has to contain 40 se'ah of water. Um, and the number 40 is a very important number for for us in our history. So um, what does 40 bring up to you in your head if you think of Torah and Moshe going up to Harsina for 40 days, the Mabul for 40 days, the desert for 40 years. Anything else? So those are like 49. They're in the 40s. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It works in the 40s. What else? There's... um, Say it again. When a person's allowed to learn Kabbalah, they have to be 40, right? Um, There's also halakha. This is not biblical, so this one I wasn't really like pushing in this direction, but there's a halakha that a baby is not considered a baby in utero until the baby is 40 days old. There's a lot of different halakhic implications of that. So the create, this is a big one because this is what we've been talking about. The creation of a person, of a being, doesn't happen for 40. It takes 40 days for that to happen. Um, some other things are like the, the milachot that we do on, that we're not allowed to do on Shabbat because they're the milachot that we did in the Mishkan. There's 39 milachot, but when the, a lot of the commentaries talk about it, they talk about it as 40 minus one, which is, there, there's reasons for that to not get totally sidetracked, but, um, all these melachot that we're not allowed to do is because they're creative melachot, right? So you're allowed to do something destructive on Shabbat, but you're not allowed to do something creative. So you can cut to open something, but you can't cut to create something, right? So these are 40 things that are creative, renewing. Um, and and all of the, um, I just got sidetracked with the melachot one, but all the examples that we gave before, the mabul, the mibar, Harsinai, all those, those are all 40s that are what? They're like, the way I see them is that they're transformative experiences, right? When we go from Mitzrayim to Eretzra, we need 40 years to have this transformation to be able to go into the land. The Mabul, the, the, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights because Hashem was literally recreating the world. Um, Moshe went up to get the Torah, it took him 40 days because he had to learn this entire Torah that would now transform our experiences, our experience as the Jewish people. So 40 in general is a very transformative number. And then the halakha about the mikveh is that it has to be 40 seyah, which is very telling. This transformational experience, we dip in these waters and we have this transformation, it has to be done in this 40, in this number 40. Um, and also... I mean, I'm not such a gematria person, but it's just, I feel like it should be said because it's, it's a really nice thing. 40 in the, in gematria is the, not, is the letter mem, right? 40 equals mem. And mem is for mikveh, but mem is also for mayim. Mayim is on one end a mem and on the other end a mem. So water in its essence is also this number 40, this trans, transformative number and experience. Um, okay. So now that we see that um, the mikveh is very, these are words that I've thrown out, right? Transformational, renewal, rebirth, creation, 
don't know if I missed any, whatever. Um, I'd like to point out that it's not just, it's not just um, very nice ideas, which I think it also is, but that halakha actually prioritizes mikveh um, very much so. So what's the halakha? When a Jewish community is built, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this halakha. So I knew the first part, and I didn't know the second part, which is really interesting. The first part that I want to say is when a Jewish community is built, the first thing that they have to build is a mikveh. Before a shul, the halakha is before a shul, a community center, a school, whatever, you have to build a mikveh first. Your priority, your initial funds have to go to the mikveh. And then the second thing, which I thought was really interesting, is that if you don't have enough money to build the mikveh, the community doesn't have enough, enough money, they have to sell their sefer Torah in order to raise money to build the mikveh, which is really fascinating. Um, so it's not just the mikveh, it's not just this, like, Thing that we have in our lives that's really beautiful and really spiritual, but it's a priority. Like Judaism prioritizes the mikveh. That we need this to be the first thing when we come together, we need the mikveh. We need to build the mikveh first before we build anything else because of all the the blessing and the good that comes out of the mikveh. The mikveh is also um, it's really like the What's, what's the word to use? It's like the key, I don't know if that's a good word, to the Jewish home, right? Um, a union between a husband and wife and this creation of new life cannot happen without the mikveh. And so that's why in a community, before anything else, to ensure the conti- continuity of the community and to ensure this uh, that this spirituality and this foundation, this building block, um, is there before anything else. That's why the halakha comes about and says that we have to build a mikveh first. Um, okay, so so I I, I think um, so okay. So I want to summarize by by going into a slightly different point. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pre summarize here, but the yeah, it's like a little. There's like something on it, but on the screen. No, no, on the screen. It's like it just it just says like. Got it. Okay, so what we built up here is that these mikveh waters are original, right? They were there before creation. They are godly and spiritual. We're tapping back into that energy and that spirituality that was there before creation, when only God existed. And they are transformative. They are renewing. And so I hope that takes our, our perspective a little bit away from, I dip in the waters because I'm nida and I'm unclean and I have to fix something. But rather use that experience when we dip in the mikveh to think, I have this potential to tap back into the first thing that was ever in the world before creation. I'm literally immersing in those exact same waters. That connects me back to pure, the pure state of godliness. It's an opportunity every, again, not everybody, but every month that we have to reconnect, to renew ourselves, to have some sort of rebirth experience. And like, and just to tap into that and to know that, that we still have, God enabled us through the mikveh to have this 
very strong connection back to these concepts. And what I, I guess I want to end with is that um, the mikveh is a very auspicious time for prayer, right? I'm sure that anyone who's been to mikveh knows that before and after there's tilo, you could say before and after, but also there's a lot of, there's minhag and there's a lot about when you're in the actual waters to pray. So I don't know if you've heard this or not, but when there's, it's a very special time to pray when you're actually in the water. So after you dip and you immerse, usually I, I think most mikvah ladies, they like kind of give you like a minute or two. They can't give you so much more because there's people waiting, you know, but you have like a minute to sit there before you come back up. Um, and it's really, if you tap into all these ideas and you feel this connection, it's really a very special and beautiful time to, to pray. And you could pray for anything. You can, you know, say whatever you want. But I don't remember the origin of it, but I always learned, like when I learned as a bride, that there's a minhag at that time to say a specific, like, two-line um, tefillah. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard this, but the tefillah is the same tefillah that some, we don't always, as far as we don't always say it, Ashkenaz and say it always, but at the end of the Amidah, there's a yihiraton. Okay, so after you finish the Amidah, there's a specific yihiraton. And it says, um, Right? So that we're asking um, Hashem to rebuild the Beit HaMikdash and that we can serve him like we did in the times of the Mikdash. Um, and I guess at first glance, it seems funny. Like, why are we saying that? Like when we're dipping in the water, it seems it seems a little funny, but I think twofold, it um, it has a lot of depth to it. So, um, on one hand, the concept of tuma and tahara, that's what we're talking about, purity and impurity, really governed our lives, and God willing, will govern our lives in the times of the mikdash. They don't really govern our lives today, except for nida, right? So, kohanim have to be careful, right, about about bodies and different things like that but there's also no real ramification like if a kohen was exposed to a dead body like he would have to if the Beit HaMikdash was built tomorrow he would have to be cleansed before he could serve in the Mikdash but it doesn't really impact his life the only real place for Tuman Tahara impacts our lives nowadays is women and Nida that's really the only the only place and so when we dip in the mikveh, we're saying like, Hashem, you're giving us the last key to this Tuman Tara that are only exists in the times of Mikdash. So we want to tap back into that. And we want to say, God, we are continuing your halachot of Tuman Tara. And so please, this is the moment where we remember to like, please rebuild the Beit HaMikdash so that we can have your halachot govern our everyday lives, not just one aspect of our lives. Um, and also, just based on everything we've been saying so far, that the Mikdash was this place of, like, pureness, right? You couldn't enter the Mikdash unless you were pure. Um, and there's a lot about about after the chet of Adam and when good and evil became integrated into all of us, whatever, that the Mikdash would be then the only place where we then have solely good where we can tap back into that pre-sin space 
so it, um, and I'm sorry I'm not elaborating on, so, on that so much, but I feel like there's too much to say about that to elaborate, so take, take me for it. <laughs> um, but if we think about that also, that the Nikdash is the time when we're tapping back into this pure good, and these waters, like everything we said, are this are reminiscent of going back to this place of of pre-sin, of pre-creation, of pure godliness. And so I guess I just want to end um, by saying just like the Yihirat on that we, we say, or God willing, we may say, for the rebuilding of the Mikdash, um, in while we're in the Mikveh, that um, God willing, by learning about this and infusing our our Tara lives with this added dose of spirituality and connection that we should merit to have the Beit HaMikdash rebuilt and really have this be a part of our everyday lives. Thank you. No so much. And we want to thank Alyssa and Sheila oh, Shama yeah. for hosting. Sorry. Thank and you we so much. We have a special um, series of the Pesaria, the card for everyone. It's uh, in the prepare. So um, if you want to take one, she's going to pass on the Thank you so much, Sheila. Thank you, Alyssa. We're having another two more sessions next Wednesday. It's, um, if you sign up on the paper, we'll send you information by the Tabby. She's it's being given by uh, Sam Cohen on Kalash. And following me also Wednesday is on um, the Nerov, by this um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, 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 ye